Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Build Amazing Things Securely Season 2. Um, it's it's flying by, isn't it, team? We're already on three episodes into a season. Who knew? Now, today, uh, I am really happy to be joined by a new friend um, who works at an amazing company called Flow. But you know the rules. Um, I'm not going to read a bio. That bores me to tears. So instead, Ryan, it's lovely to have you here. Welcome. Thank you very much, Laura. Thank you. And Ryan, who are you as a human? Well, as a as a human, yes, I'm. I, I guess I'll start with the the professional side and can get more into the human side. I'm the head of engineering at the company called Flow that you you mentioned there. Um, have been there for about the last nine months. Um, and been involved in software in, in various sort of aspects since the very sort of early two thousands. Um, aside from that, as a as a human, I've got sort of two two young boys, uh, a wife and a dog, and some cats. And um, yeah, we 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 sort of live in Sydney in in Australia. Fabulous. Um, now you guys at home can't see it because I get to see people, and I, then I keep it from you just as like a weird tease. But he has a beautiful backdrop. It's all forests and things. Um, we're all secretly jealous, <laughs> um, not so secretly in my case. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. Um, it's awesome to meet someone not just who's doing something cool now, but who has, you know, a few years behind them, um, much like me, where we've we've all been on adventures in our career. Now, Ryan, you have a whole bunch of things that we're we're going to talk about today. I know that you're a massive fan of the Rust language, and I think uh, digging into that will be really, really useful. But I'd love to start with what you're building at Flow. Not because of the product, you know, we're not here to to sell products one or the other, but we do look at the interesting things being built and how that affects security. So what is Flow? What are you doing there? So um, Dale and I saw the opportunity for, for really how can we empower an 11x engineering teams that is, you know, engineers are, are generally good at what they do people have ideas want to build products and ship them and and we see i've seen through throughout my career a repeated pattern of you see the same thing someone within a team becomes the infrastructure expert on on you know how do i deploy to production how do i how do i run it in prod organizations mature and they, they try and centralize that responsibility into whole teams that manage the infrastructure and i've seen this pattern repeated at, at many many places and we we really see flow as the sort of next step here in really sort of sort of democratizing the the sort of the journey to infrastructure and that is how can we enable engineering teams to focus on the features that they want to build how can we we make them give them you know the tools and the power so that they can continue to build them that they are not wasting this opportunity cost on you know writing thousands and thousands of lines of yaml to reconfigure their infrastructure and deploy you know, deploy their their service over and over again. So, so what we're doing at Flow is really a really a really sort of um, streamlined process for engineers, teams, founders, technical or not, to get up and running and deploying services and products to to our platform there without having to worry about the infrastructure side of things. So we take you know their GitHub repo, we containerize it, we deploy it, we scale it, we manage it. And I think from 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 our perspective, our focus has always been. Uh, you know, back-end applications and APIs and deploying and scaling them. And um, recently entered a partnership with uh, Neon, the database vendor. So you know, we offer sort of you know, the back-end services, Neon databases, things like that. So, and, you know, we, we do have a reasonably sort of a, well, well obviously, I think a compelling roadmap of um, <laughs> extra sort of things we, we want to build there. But really, it, it's about, you know, how do we enable people to, you know, build what they want to build? Like no one, well, 
Some people do, yes, but mm. not a lot of people enjoy reconfiguring AWS or Azure or GCP sort of over and over again. So how can we sort of take that pain away and allow people to focus on shipping value for their product? So, you know, as a security nerd, this kind of idea, well, it fascinates me and horrifies me all at the same time. So bear with me. Um, I'm not going to be mean, I promise. Um, so I love the idea of not having to spend think, time on things that I'm not the person to do, right? You know, I, I want to build a, an app that does X, Y, and Z. I'm not really fussed about doing all of the underlying things. Like, this is there's a reason I use things like Twilio. There's a reason why I would use something like Stripe, because I don't want to write those things myself. It's just not worth my time. Um, but then the security nerd in me kind of kicks in and goes, ah, oh, yes, Laura, but this sounds like a magic box. How do you know the magic box is doing all of the right things and, and going to keep the, the, the code secure? And then also, you know, security nerd brain, I'm like, well, now there's lots of people on this server with me. So it's really, really interesting to understand how separated you are and how security works. So as somebody who's on the other side of this, who, you know, builds it for a living, how does security work when you are, you know, the ultimate end of multi-tenanted infrastructure? I think security is our is our sort of, I guess, top priority and tenant in everything we build because obviously if we if we have those breaches and you know, we we'd like to strive and say we're never going to have these breaches but I don't I don't think that's that's None of us inherently rooted in reality yes. yes yeah exactly and and so it's it's about you know how, what we the, the preparation we put in place and that is that whole security through layers and making sure that we we you know the holes in the cheese aren't going to line up type thing if you if you take that mm. sort of metaphor from aviation but also how we react to these um to these things you know when they if or when they inevitably inevitably do happen for us um we take it all the way down for obviously we run customer containers we scale them and we we sort of deploy them across multiple clusters in various locations and making sure that we keep that isolation as tight as possible between our tenants our our customers sort of running there down the fact that even even between customer environments the same customer the same project running a dev and prod environment not even not even having access there and we do that through um a network isolation layer so making sure mm. that we, we have zero sort of network connectivity between, you know, those two environments between that customer and, you know, the connections we allow are only, you know, they're all allow listed. They're not, they're not, you know, just ad hoc. So we know everything that's been made. The customer knows everything that's been made in and out. On top of that, I mean, obviously there's, there's the sort of preventative measures we put in place, but also the more proactive sort of monitoring and alerting and, and identifying where these connections are coming from, where they're going to, and, and how we sort of maintain that. And obviously monitoring to make sure that, you know, We've built a, a, a large amount of infrastructure and making sure that this stays secure and, and it runs. And then mm. obviously monitoring and making sure that those assumptions are continuing to, to, to hold true and it is doing what we, what we think it is doing. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Even just thinking about how much work it would be to do that yourself, I feel tired. Um, you know, it, it's a great thing that you can do these things yourself. You know, you could spin up your own, you know, AWS environment and build this type of thing from scratch. But my goodness, you are talking about not just a lot of time, but quite a lot of skills to understand the many layers and many components that are interacting there for that level mm -hmm. of isolation. So I can totally see why there's a benefit to companies using something like yourselves or any of your competitors for, mm -hmm. you know, taking care of that aspect for you. Um, how long would you say, if you were going to build it by hand, how long would it take you to build an equivalent containerized environment if you're going to just pull something off the shelf? 
I like <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll get to I just want to touch on you know something you mentioned before of, of people you know yes they can absolutely go out and build it you know we've we've gone out and built it and many other companies have as well and and this is this is why I, I absolutely love my job and this is the reason why I've always been an infrastructure nerd down in the down in the guts in, of the machine down in the engine room there and how how do we build it and so you know being in a position where like that is my job I I absolutely love and so in terms of building it there's there's a number of a number of you know different issues here there's there's the terms of you could build it very specific to your situation. You can, you know, spin up either bare metal machines, run your own, infra- like run your own sort mm. of containers there. If you don't have to worry about sort of other other sort of services, other sort of bad actors potentially running on the platform, it's it's very easy to get up and running. But a lot of this comes through the sort of defense in depth that comes into play. And that is like, you want these layers, you probably want those isolation layers if you're the only tenant on the machine as well in the sense that if something is compromised on the machine you still have another layer of protection there and you try to build up these these sort of layers this as i said defense in depth there um when it comes to to how long it would take to build it it's it's very much a how long's a piece of <laughs> a piece of string i, I think it's it's you know, I, I don't think software engineers are uh generally well known for their ability to to accurately estimate um oh, <laughs> engineering hush, hush, hush. I, we, we're all perfectly good at this we all got given those cards <laughs> with numbers on them and we, we've been great at estimating ever since no but i i, I totally get your point on that it's it, it it's complex right and you know we don't have many infrastructure nerds come on and i i love that we've got one today um because i think we you know, we spend so much time at the software layer that we start seeing everything as software. Um, and it's really easy to feel that way. You know, you've got Terraform and, and all sorts that you can play with. And, you know, it's it's a similar environment. There is a lot to think about. And a previous guest of ours, um, he he made a good point about picking the one thing that you know you can't change once you've made that decision and making sure you get that bit right. And I feel like there's some infrastructure decisions that you make early, early on that if you went down a pathway and did your own thing, it's gonna be really hard for you to change later. So you're an infrastructure nerd. You decided you're gonna build a product company. Yeah, well, that's, that's, there's life choices there. We're not gonna judge you. Um, so how many people are in the company now? So at the moment we've got eleven people. Most Amazing. the the vast the vast majority of those are in Sydney, though we do have one in Canada and one in Israel. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Well, the reason I ask, you know, is we we see all of our, our role model companies out there, those big names and brands everyone talks about, you know, with hundreds or thousands of people. Um, and securing things and keeping track of things when you're 11 people, as somebody who runs uh, an equally small company, that's tricky. So how do you manage security over a product company when you're 11? Is it something that somebody owns or is it a shared thing? Walk us through it. I, I've... Um... I, there's sort of two answers here. I think there's the whole security is everyone's responsibility, mm-hmm. but I, I also I also subscribe to the the shared responsibility is no responsibility type type viewpoint there. And so making sure that we have the right sort of processes and tools and structure in place to make sure that you know we can ensure that we sort of both are shipping the right features, the secure features, and that we can react when time is needed to in, in incidents and emergencies um, to, to get to a right mitigation in a, in a considerable amount of time. Now, this is, this is a very, um, 
think this is a very large company perspective in in the sense that yes we'll put process around it we'll put structure we'll assign people to it and things like that so there's like any small company small startups there is the balance there of how do we how do we move quickly how do we actually ship value to our customers mm. you know, our infrastructure and you know get them moving quickly but doing it in a in a sort of secure and structured um sort of sort of way there and and i think from for us this is you know and, and i'm happy to say this is a bit of a there is, there is a lot of learning going on in terms mm. of you know how do we find that right balance between moving quickly and getting features out the door as well as without imposing too much process and structure on a, on our team there yeah I, and and we see this a lot right like the idea of minimum viable security and minimum viable process if you will and it's not to, that it lacks importance it's just that you've got to make some really pragmatic decisions as to where to focus your time otherwise you're going to get nothing else done now i think this we, we're going to do a really dirty segue and i'm going to make it look like it was supposed <laughs> to happen but i think it all links down as well to the technologies you're choosing to build from um now i, I mentioned at the very start ryan that you are a rust person is it safe to assume that there is a rust component in flow or have you gone completely you know off your your base and you're doing something else no that, that that is that is perfectly safe to assume or it's, it's a very it's a very large rust component within awesome. the platform itself um from a and i've for lack of a better term completely drunk the kool-aid here but uh it's 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 a very um you know we we i think it's very fit for purpose in terms of what we're doing we you know from a business perspective, it means that, you know, every bit of compute we use as compute, we can't sort of sell to our customers. So, so there's that side of things there. So the efficiency the, of the, the binaries that we actually build are there. The ability to move quickly and, you know, defer a lot of issues to the compiler. You know, compilers are very good at, at mm -hmm. you know, doing this analysis task, doing, doing repetitive tasks over and over again and things that we don't have to have, you know, our, our sort of, meat bags of software engineers do in, in their minds to, um, to, to work out, you know, is this going to be, is this concurrency going to be safe? Is this a potential for a use after free or an index out of bounds or anything like that? Deferring that to the compiler and the ability to move quickly. And I think all of these have been really, you know, really, I guess, resonated with me. And, and, you know, to be, to be perfectly fair, I've been a, a, a large proponent of Rust for a, for a reasonably long time. And I think it was, you know, I, I did bring this into flow when I joined as well. And, and I think, you know, the team has in, in, in all fairness have really embraced uh, a lot of this and it has allowed us to move um, quite quickly over, over the last you know, few months there as we've, you know, it's been about six months since we introduced things there and started migrating it. And I think, um, you know, again, probably tangential to the, to the, to the security side of things here, but from a from I guess a logistical and hiring sort of a staffing perspective there you know actually finding you know engineers um in the rust space is is not that it's hard but it's more that the engineers we do find there's a there's a very high signal to noise ratio there so so people are very motivated and keen to come and work on a on a on a rust code base as well all right awesome well I think you know the rust community is not one that I have have really spent much time with so this is quite exciting to me um so, like, you know, indulge me here a little while I, I kind of dig into the Rust world a bit. What makes this language so exciting? Why? Why? You, you know, you mentioned that it's good at, at the compiler level and things. But, you know, if I was going to be starting out with Rust today, 
you know, what is the moment that you found with it that you're like, oh, heck, this is the solution to all of the problems I didn't know I had? <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I, I wish it was um, the solution to, to all of my problems. Unfortunately, it is, it is like any language, it's not perfect. And I think we're looking at incremental improvements here. It's, you know, I, I like, I want to make sure we, we don't, and this is, I guess, the way I approach, we don't set the bar as like it has to be the be all and end all. It's very much it, it has to be better than what we've previously had. And, you know, the things that Rust introduces in terms of um, this notion of a borrow checker. So, so when either data goes out of scope or it is no longer sort of valid in memory, the compiler will actually flag these and, and you know, you'll, you'll fight it. There's a common meme of, of, you know, learning the borrow checker and fighting the borrow checker when people start learning Rust. Um, but, you know, making sure that, that we, we do have that sort of safe access to, to, to memory when, when writing and changing and, and, you know, hitting things, making sure that we can, you know, um, I, I think before this podcast, I did a I did a bit of research, and we look back in July. There were thirty three CVEs for use after free. So just in July, there thirty three of them. Sort of vulnerabilities ranging in you know various. I think the highest I saw was a nine point eight score on on the score there. And and this these are the exact things that that you know this language is is there to prevent. Like we've had, you know, we've had C around from seventies, and you know it's it's got a a long, um, long coloured history. We have C plus plus as well there, but a lot of these issues still, still sort of exist, and and mm. you know that's evident today, and that we see these vulnerabilities continuing. Even you know even today, there are a couple of new CVEs, um, um, you know that that have come out here. So I think there's a large opportunity there that we can we can sort of wholesale cut out these whole classes of vulnerabilities in the software that we build. I, I, you know, I'm going to say something a little contentious. So sorry, audience, but I feel like we've actually done ourselves a bit of a disservice, you see, because we're mentioning use after free vulnerabilities right now. Now, those of you who have, you know, started in in the web space or in the last 15 years, you know, you might have come across the OWASP top 10. Great, wonderful. Uh, top 10 list of common web vulnerabilities. Nowhere on that list is a use after free vulnerability. Those classes of vulnerabilities, the ones that are associated with things like C and C++ and uh, more traditional backend languages and server languages, um, we don't talk about them much anymore. Um, buffer overflows, um, the, you know, the to many of us quite foundational or fundamental old school bugs, they are still very much present in the world. But we spend a lot more time talking about things like SQL injection and, and cross-site scripting, the more web-centric vulnerabilities. I think this is a really good reminder that not everything we're building is web and not all of the software that we have has those categories of vulnerabilities. Mm, absolutely. And I, I think this is this is only going to become you know more prevalent over the last, well, I was going to say the last 25 years, but I think that's that's a very sort of that is my personal scope but over the last you know as, as computers have evolved they've become more and more ingrained into our daily lives like from from our phones to the actual sort of hardware we run to the to the cellular radios that run their own OS inside of the you know phones that we have to our cars all of those things there and and you know there's there's a number of competing forces here in that in that you know vendors want to make these as efficient as possible so they start you know moving towards especially in the embedded space you know languages that don't have runtime so that's your c that is rust mm. in some cases a bunch of you know other languages there but it also opens up these sort of other vulnerabilities and so you know when we get to the point of 
you know, maybe your car can be broken into because of some vulnerability in the Bluetooth stack or something like that, then it becomes, you know, th these are things that, you know, they go, they go beyond just some sort of trivial hack into, into mm. having, you know, actual sort of material impact on, on sort of how we live our lives. I, I genuinely can't wait to have the conversation with my car insurer that explains that there was a theft of my vehicle due to a software vulnerability. I feel like that's <laughs> going to be the most painful insurance claim that I ever do in my life. Um, it, it, it's a really fascinating space. Um, yeah, if you were to look forward to the future and technology that's being built right now or, or that's coming, what's the technology that you're most excited about, Ryan? I and and. I'll be honest. I don't have a lot of um, a lot of knowledge in this area, and I think that's probably why it excites me because I don't know the, the the all of the underlying details. I, I mean, there's a great reason to be excited about something. Yeah, I think there's there's been this issue that has been around. Well, that's been around since compilers have been around in the in the sense of um, trusting trust. So, so Ken Thompson wrote a paper in the early '80s about. Trusting trust, that is, um, how do you trust that the compiler you're using to compile source code is actually outputting source code that does what you, what, out, outputting a binary that does what you, that your source code said it would do. And so he, he came up with a, a proof of concept where he compromised a compiler that would know what it's compiling, would know if it's compiling itself. And so if it built another copy of itself, even from perfectly clean source code, it would include this vulnerability in the compiler. And you get this, this sort of, it, it just transmits along every binary you build, every compiler you build. And that, that is a really sort of interesting space in terms of language design because there's, um, there's, you know, you need to bootstrap a language somehow. And, you know, nowadays, not everyone, you know, not everyone has the resources of some, you know, some megacorps to go all the way back to some, you know, very first trusted version of GCC so that they can build a new version of yeah. GCC so they can build the Linux kernel to run to bootstrap their whole environment. Not everyone has that. We, we, we sort of start trusting it. But I think the, the area of interest here is really that sort of there's this whole notion around the sort of chain of provenance and and how do we actually trust what is coming to us and you know so many of us will just you know fork what's on github or pull down some git dependency or something like that and run it in our code without actually understanding that you know it could be compromised and we've seen this um you know not to not to harp on node but i think uh, the node community has seen this but many other communities yeah. have seen this as well of, of pulling down dependencies that you know, you update them and they suddenly become malicious. So how do we, how do we sort of manage that chain of trust there and that, that sort of provenance of where, where the software comes from? And I know there's, I'd say maybe, yeah, prior art here, I think there's, there's been a, a number of false starts around, um, I, I used to be, I used to be a, I'll say used to be um, a, a big sort of crypto nerd in the sense, and crypto in the sense of cryptography, not not crypto coins. So, so, so you're not you know, a crypto bro in the in the sense. No, of, no, definitely. No, okay, <laughs> definitely, right. de definitely not in that sense. But um, in the sense of cryptography, and you know, how do we do? How do we establish that shared trust when there is, you know, no no shared mechanism? And and you know, you, you read about sort of you know, Diffie Hellman and the key exchange protocol there, and then the early implementations of RFA, and I think. You know, th there's been certain parts of, um, I think particularly the open source community that have pushed a lot of, um, you know, this in terms of how we encrypt emails and things like that. But even today, a lot of, you know, the, the, there is, um, it is, it is better. It is absolutely better than it was, but we're still not at the point of, um, you know, it's, I guess if I PGP sign an email, it's, uh, 
people are more likely than not going to say, what on earth is that? That is, that yeah, is I was going to say, <laughs> I, you just out yourself as a security consultant at some point, to be honest. They're the only people I know who do it. I love you, your folks, but you're the only people. Um, mm. And I think the fact that you mentioned that paper from the 80s is a really, uh, you know, we, we have to keep in mind like we talk a lot about, you know, software security and security in the the supply chain of software. And, you know, since Biden's executive order in, in the last couple of years about, you know, having S-bombs and things, the whole world is trying to sell us an S-bomb maker. Um, but this isn't new. You know, the paper you're quoting is, is, I was about to say 20, but that's, I'm not 20, so it can't be 20. It's 80, so it's 30 plus years old. Um and we're still talking about these challenges now. And I think these are fundamental challenges. I don't think they're going to be fixed late in the game by security folks adding on new tooling. I think they really have to start at the roots of our languages and our frameworks and how we build those ecosystems into a, a trusted state. Um, you mentioned... I, I, oh, carry on. No, no, no. no, no so, sorry, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I, 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 I couldn't agree more. This is... This is and you know, much like, I guess, any security posture, it's it's not something you can just sort of paint on top of what you've got. It's It's got to be, it's got to be a whole approach. And it, you know, defensive depth is very hard to do if you're just doing a surface skim on top of whatever, whatever you've built. And, you know, I'm, I, it, it does get me down a bit because things are becoming more complex. People are, you know, bootstrapping compilers from machine code are going to be few and far between these days i would i would i would hazard a guess um and then not only that is that the hardware is becoming more and more complex like the firmware the microcode that goes into our processes is just like it is it is this big sort of opaque box to us that we we just don't know how it works and that is you know that is the name of progress that is that is a good thing we you know 30 years ago had video chats like this or a podcast would were were not not possible. I, I'd say um, I'm sure there was some back then, but um, you know that there, there is there is this whole aspect there. So it does it does sort of you know I, I feel to an extent maybe we have missed the boat on a lot of this, and we just need to trust. You know, it, we just need to sort of reevaluate our definition of trust as opposed to as opposed to you know trying to fix the solution from from the root, and that is you know relying on what is ultimately probably going to be some some big tech company, you know, those guys or something like that. Um, that that uh, you pointed subtly to Google for those who can't see. Yeah, I, I realize this. Um, <laughs> this is a, this is an audio medium, and they can't see the video. But um, you know, relying relying on on companies like that that can actually afford to do the work and establish a trust there. But obviously, you know, if things go pear shaped in in that direction, it's it becomes a lot harder for us to maintain. Mm, I, I think the big challenges now, I can't tell from our conversation if we're in a good place or a bad place, Ryan. Do we think the world can be saved or is it hopeless? I, I'm reluctant to say anything's hopeless um, in, in that it's it, like, I don't think it can be saved in the way that a lot of idealists would want it to be saved. Um, and it's going to be an exercise in reevaluating expectations for, for, for how we come to the solution here. And I feel that is the most um, on the fence answer I probably could have given that, that, to that it, question. It, to be honest, you could not have balanced on that fence edge any closer than, than if you'd have tried. Um, but I think it's, it's a hard question, you know, um, 
And I think that's why this podcast exists. It's why, you know, as, as security folk, we're in this new phase. It's we've got to challenge how we embrace this future of technology that we need and want for lots of reasons. Um, and where we draw the line on acceptable risk and how we keep what we care about secure. And, and none of that's easy. Um, it's not necessarily achievable in a way that we would expect right now or that we know how to do. But that doesn't mean we give up. We just carry on. We keep on trying and building crazy, amazing things, just like you're doing at Flow. Um, so, you know, on behalf of a community who no doubt is very grateful uh, for the ability to not spend years and years writing YAML to do their infrastructure, um, it looks like really cool stuff. And we will check back in and see how that adventure takes you and your 10 other people. Um, and I'm sure the Rust community will welcome all of the new people who go and have a look around and try it out. Now, if you were going to give folks a getting started tip for Rust, if we were going to go do it today, what would you suggest to folks just wanting to get started and understand why Rust is different? So um, the, the biggest thing that I, I've that really, really sort of helped me get started in Rust is, is the community. I, I find the community exceedingly open and welcoming and make, like it's obviously grown over over the years um, now. And I think it was, oh, crikey, it was about 10 years ago. It was about 2013, 2014 that I started looking at it. But um, in, in terms of getting started, there's, there's you know, there's as much as I despise the platform, Reddit and, and things like that, there are very good communities there. There's a Rust rustling mailing list to get more more involved in the language itself. And then there's a whole host of really good content in terms of YouTube if you want five minute sort of videos or you want six hour videos and everything in between, it seems. There's a huge amount of content there. And I think that's a that's a format I've really been, it's probably the last two years I've been getting into is, is you know, watching other people sort of live code and stream their coding is, um, I never thought it'd be something I'm into, but it's, it's, it's very enjoyable there. And then of course, um, you could go back to the more traditional you know, books. People, people still read books these days. And, and there's a, there's a rough programming language book published, um, for free online as well as you can get it in hard copy, um, from, from the, the Rust language itself. And then there's a whole host of other, other books. We have a, we have a, um, you know, a hard copy of the O'Reilly Rust book, um, Programming Rust by, um, uh, Jim Blandy and I can't I can't remember who else. I, I do apologise, but um, but you know a copy of that that's passed around the office and you know whenever we have a new starter or someone with um some rust issue that they get the the doggy sort of ragged copy that that sort of floats around the office. You know, I, I love some things never ever change in engineering, do they? They yes. they never do. That sounds like a really great place to start. So many wonderful community things, and as a security nerd who you know hasn't had any chance to see you know how Rust does handle those. Vulnerabilities we don't talk about as much, like use after free and buffer overflows. Um, I can't wait to get stuck in. So thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us today. Uh, it's been a lot of yes. fun. Um, thank you very how much. How can people that. catch up with you afterwards? What's the best way to connect with you? I'm a, I'm a bit of a social media hermit, but um, I, I was, <laughs> yes, yes, surprising. But um, I, I think GitHub or LinkedIn, actually. So so LinkedIn. There we is, go. Uh, is, I, I, as much as I am. Um, it's I right. hold we strong don't opinions judge. on some of these topics, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know. <laughs> we don't it's, judge. It's the way things are done. But otherwise, um, my my email is at right to, yeah, Ryan, Ryan at flow.com, fl0.com. Um, and you know, feel free to reach out. More than happy to chat about anything like this. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Ryan. Thank you very much, Laura. It's been great.
And to all of us listening in, remember to like, share, subscribe, all of those things that I'm supposed to tell you and always forget to do. And remember, if you are looking to bring some secure development to your team, one hour AppSec is kicking off in August 2023, giving you just one hour's worth of work per sprint to do to bring security through your entire software development lifecycle. And best of all, it's free. So join up, onehouraapsec.com. Okay, and we will see you next episode.